It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. You've got questions. Steve's got answers. A lot of questions. Uh, Australia's stiff fines for not disclosing a break-in. What country is prosecuting its own XIT staff for a memory breach? Uh, which podcast had the most amazing guest last week? I wonder. And what happened when Spinrite was won on an SSD? Plus, an analysis of LastPass's recent revelation of an attacker intrusion. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 900. Recorded Tuesday, December 6th, 2022. Last pass again. This episode of Security Now is brought to you by IT Pro from ACI Learning. IT Pro TV is now IT Pro from ACI Learning. If you're looking to break into the world of IT, or if your IT team needs to level up, get the introduction you need with IT Pro. Check out an IT Pro business plan by visiting itpro.tv slash security now today and by thinkst canary detect attackers on your network while avoiding irritating false alarms get the alerts that matter for 10 percent off and a 60-day money-back guarantee go to canary.tools slash twit and enter the code twit in the how did you hear about us box and by PlexTrack, the premier cybersecurity reporting and collaboration platform. With PlexTrack, you'll streamline the full workflow from testing to reporting to remediation. Visit PlexTrack.com slash twit to claim your free month of PlexTrack today. It's time for Security Now, the show where we cover your security, your privacy. We explain things. We talk about the world as it is with this fantastic fellow right here, Mr. Steve Gibson. Hello, Steve. Hello, Leo. You noted, and I had previously seen, that we are now at episode 900. Yes. Wow. So, uh, wow. For, the be- for the beginning of December, and I, I, there was little doubt that I had to title today's podcast, Last Pass Again. Yeah. Yeah, boy. Holy cow. Yeah, this uh, was breaking just... news at the end of the episode last week, and now we've had you've had time to... Yep. Yep. Look at it. And I still so, don't know if we know exactly what happened, but I'm well, looking and, forward and to no, hearing in fact, it. Yes, we, we will get there. We're going to answer a few questions. And when I looked at the word few, I thought, wait a minute, we're doing more than a few. What if an Australian company uh, doesn't secure their own network? Also, has Ireland not levied fines against any major internet <laughs> property owned by Meta? <laughs> no. <laughs> What's in... What's in Revel's complete dump of Australia's MetaBank data disclosure? We finally answer, Leo, the question, is is nothing sacred? It turns out it's not rhetorical. Also, whose root cert just got pulled from all of our browsers? And how did a handful of Android platform certs escape? Hmm. What U.S. state, I kid you not, has banned all use of TikTok? What? Uh-huh. What country is prosecuting its own XIT staff after a breach? How has memory safe language deployment actually fared in the wild? Mm-hmm. Are last August's Black Hat 2022 videos finally out yet? <laughs> 
And which brand of IoT security camera do you probably not want to use or purchase? Which podcast had the most amazing guest last week? Hmm. What happened when when Spinrite was run on an SSD? Uh And what does LastPass's announcement of another hacker intrusion mean for it and its users? Answers to those questions and more coming your way during this week's Security Now podcast. You've got questions. Steve has answers. Inquiring minds want to know. Well, that's why we tune in the show, right? Every and every week. why is nothing sacred? I can't wait to hear that one. Uh, some of those I think I know the answer to, but we'll see. Hey, we want to uh, say hello to IT Pro TV, our sponsor for this segment, but also mention that there's been a little change. IT Pro TV is now IT Pro from ACI Learning. And this is really good news for IT Pro customers because now you've got an even broader range of offerings with a company that is committed to educating, to teaching, to getting the information into your brain so you can do a better job, you can get the certs you need to get the job you want, IT Pro's mission is just getting better. Your IT team needs the skills and knowledge to ensure that your business is a success, right? With IT Pro, more than 80% of users who start a video actually finish it. I'm talking about training your IT team with content that's engaging, that's fun, that they will see as a gift, not as an assignment. See as something they want to do, not something you're making them do. If you've got a business, you know you need to keep your IT team up to snuff. If you run an IT team, you know that's probably the most important part of your job, coaching them, getting them to learn, getting them to expand their skills. Well, IT Pro is the way to do it. An assignment they'll actually embrace and love. IT Pro is engaging. Your team will enjoy learning on their platform. And they will get the tools they need to make your business thrive. Uh, The tech industry, of course, is changing constantly, right? That's one of the reasons you can't just have your IT team sit on their laurels. Is that what they're sitting on? They can't just sit on their laurels. They've got to evolve with technology. They've got to learn more skills, even if you've got the best team in the world. There's, there's new software releases, there's system upgrades, there are new cyber threats, they're evolving all the time. IT Pro offers the training that you need to handle these disruptions. And, and what's great is your team is going to learn fast, and again, they're going to be happy about the whole thing. Uh, so what do you get? What do you get with IT Pro? You get all the training, all the search for your team done in one place. Every vendor Every skill you need for your IT team training. Microsoft, sure. Cisco, you bet. Linux, Apple, security, cloud, so much more. IT Pro has more than 6,800 hours worth of training on demand. They cover everything from technical skills, compliance, you bet, even soft skills like marketing, running your business. There's a lot of information in these in these IT Pro uh, uh, videos. They're all 20 to 30 minutes long, which means it's very easy to watch them at, at your convenience, your IT team's convenience. They all come with transcripts, which is great for you as well because you can make assignments. You could say, you know what, Joe, you've got to learn a little bit more about uh, OAuth here. So we're going to, this is the episode to watch. And you knew it because you found it through searching the transcripts. It's kind of like what we do with, with Steve. You have a great 
dashboard too, you know, where you can manage seats unassigned and assign team members. You can access monthly usage reports to make sure it's being used. You'll see metrics like logins and viewing time and tracks completed. It's very granular. You can say you need to do this uh, down to a single episode. Uh, this group is a subset that needs to do this, that kind of thing. Completely customize the assignments and always, of course, monitoring progress, which is important. So also so you can justify the spend to your higher up so you get great reporting, uh, visual reports that are easy to look at, to scan and say, oh, yeah, it's working uh, on the viewing patterns, on progress and all of that there. And we always talk about IT pros, individual plans. Those are still there it is the best place for training an IT team, for keeping an IT team up to snuff, for getting your own personal training, for getting that first job or you know what? If your boss isn't buying it for you, do it for yourself just because it's good for your own development. IT Pro now from ACI Learning. Give your team the IT development platform they need to level up their skills and enjoy every step of the way. Go to itpro.tv slash security now. That's the website. Find out more. Give it to your team. You will get great results. You'll be happy. They'll be happy. itpro.tv slash security now actually i know a lot of companies there's a, more than a handful of companies that have bought this show for their team so they can keep up to date on all this stuff steve um there there are people who, i hear from people and i know you do too all the time who say security now is a critical part of me getting my job done uh and keeping up with what's what's changing all the time so and it's cool also that, that you're able to get ce credits uh, for yeah, people do that, right? Yeah, that's yeah, great. yeah, yeah. Many, yeah, and in yeah. fact, it's like official. I hear okay, from professors so, who should give this to their classes. The show, yeah, it's great. Go ahead. Sorry, our our picture our picture of the week oh, is a, yet. is a great one. Uh, so uh, the, the caption that came with it it was perfect. So it reads: If you've ever messed up a dimension or a whole position on something you're building, don't be too hard on yourself. At least you're not the Cisco design engineer oh, dear. who caused <laughs> uh-huh who caused an entire product line recall by placing the mode button directly above an RJ45 port. Oh man. That button resets the switch to its factory default <laughs> settings when it's held down. And what and happens so for, when you plug in an Ethernet with a lock? Uh, yes. Well, yeah. So for, for for those who can't see the picture, what we see is an RJ45 plug in the first port of the switch. Now, if it were just a, a minimal RJ45, that would be fine. That was what the engineer was thinking. But if you put one of those rubber boots on it where... You have that rubber flap that comes over and 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 protects the 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 the, lock. the, the plastic yeah. lock, yeah. right? Then what happens is that thing is perfectly positioned <laughs> over the over the oh factory reset button. Oh my god! So if you were then to lift the cord up, that would rotate the plug so that the the protective boot pushes the re the factory reset button down and holds it uh, holds it down and and holds it down returning the switch to its the you know like the where the 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 uh, the login and 
and I password can't understand or, or why every time Cisco, I set up Cisco. Our, our Cisco uh, router, it uh, it, re- <laughs> it uh, goes back to factory settings. I don't understand it. Yeah, what what could be wrong? Oh goodness. Anyway, great picture of the week. Thank you, uh, listener, who sent that to me. Okay, so continuing our recent Australia watch. Recall from last week that a recent cybersecurity country ranking, which was published by MIT, gave Australia the number one slot for cyber defense, followed by, in decreasing order, the Netherlands, South Korea, U.S., and Canada. So, Australia number one. We recently covered Australia's proactive declaration of cyber war, which they'll be waging against the world's perpetrators of cybercrime, not waiting for them to commit another crime, but, you know, going after them. You know, it would seem that these high-profile attacks on Optus, Telstra, Metabank, that we'll be talking about a little bit later, Woolworths, and Energy Australia, really woke up the sleeping bear and galvanized Australia into action. You know, they've decided to go active. Last week saw another facet of this campaign with the creation of new legislation to replace Australia's creaky 34-year-old Privacy Act of 1988. The new legislation ups the ante when Australia's own internal attack targets, like those companies just mentioned, turn out to be willfully negligent. The legislation bears the cumbersome name Privacy Legislation Amendment Enforcement and Other Measures, Bill 2022. It grants the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner, the OAIC, the power to levy hefty fines on companies, and not only Australian companies, which is interesting, we'll get to that in a second, which ignore security best practices to needlessly expose their customers' data through cybersecurity breaches. Under this bill, which is expected to receive royal assent shortly to place it into force, companies that fail to safeguard their data face face fines of up to the greater of 50 million Australian or 30% of the company's adjusted revenue, whichever is greater. (laughs) The existing fines. uh, Yeah. So if, you know, if if you have more than 30, if 30% is, is greater than 50 million Australian, that's what you got to pay. So now this is a huge change. The existing fines impose only 2.22 million Australian as a fine as a result of security breaches. So we're going from 2.22 million to 50 million or 30% of revenue if 30% is more than 50 million. Okay, so steep as this is. The updating of Australia's antiquated legislation has not surprisingly been greeted with positive feedback from Australian cybersecurity experts who view it, and I think reasonably, as the incentive needed to get local companies to pay the attention that they must to the state of their IT systems, right? I mean, it's like, oh, we're sorry, like when a breach happens, it's like, well, if you, you know, if you worked 
to fix this in the first place proactively, then you wouldn't have to be sorry. And Australian citizens wouldn't have had all of this data lost. So, you know, you know, given the historical reticence that we keep seeing to getting ahead of this problem, nobody does. I don't I can't see any other way to bring about the changes we need. You know, it does still feel a bit wrong for the suppliers of the too often buggy systems which enterprises rely upon to continue to be held harmless. But that's a bridge we're not prepared to cross yet. So at this point, we're going to say, well, were you patching? Were you, you know, you know, like, and, and that's the other problem, too, that is uncomfortable here is how is this decision about negligence reached? Because it's a it's a thorny problem. Um, I mentioned before that this law wasn't applicable only to Australian companies. According to the bill's text, its provision and fines will also apply to any non-Australian company who's doing business in Australia, even if they're headquartered outside of Australia. And that one promises to prove interesting. You know, Australia fining some other company who's doing business in Australia who exposes the the private information of Australian citizens, 50 million Australian. Wow. Um, okay. While we're on the topic of fines, uh, Ireland's data protection agency fined Meta uh, 285 million euros due to Facebook's data breach a year and a half ago in April of 2021. The Irish Data Protection Commission said that Meta failed to safeguard its Facebook platform from data scraping, which, you know, as we know, data scraping is just like bots, spiders get in and scrape all of the pages of Facebook. Uh, anyway, the, the, this Irish Data Protection Commission alleges that this allowed a threat actor to compile details on more than 530 million Facebook users. This data was later sold on an underground cybercrime forum. Thus, bad guys profited. Facebook told TechCrunch that following the incident, they rolled out protections to detect scraping operations, to which I would ask uh, again, why not before this? I mean, it really does seem that we're with it. We're having to like severely punish these tech companies in order to get their attention and, and get them to change their behavior. Crazy as it seems after the fact, since Ireland had previously fined Meta's Instagram 405 million euros in September of also this year and WhatsApp got a fine of 228 million euros uh, in the, the previous September. This now rounds out the fines so that Ireland's data protection agency has now fined all or each of Meta's three main platforms. So that answers the question we posed at the beginning. Is there any major property of Meta that Ireland has not yet fined? The answer now, no, they've got them all. Um, and speaking of MetaBank and Australia, okay, remember, MetaBank, as I mentioned, was one of the several ransomware embarrassments that Australia-based organizations recently suffered. Well, MetaBank stood up to the Reval gang 
as everyone thinks they should, if you if you can, refusing to pay or to buckle under to Revel's extortion threats. Uh, they threatened to release the entire contents of what had been um, illegally stolen from MetaBank. So MetaBank is Australia's largest private health insurer. Uh, and what's known is that this significant personal data for MetaBank's 9.7 million current and past clients was stolen during Revel's original intrusion and data exfiltration. So last Thursday, MetaBank released a lengthy statement. I won't bother with it all, but it began, We're aware that stolen MetaBank customer data has been released on the dark web overnight. We're in the process of analyzing the data, but the data released appears to be the data we believed the criminals stole. Unfortunately, we expected the criminals to continue to release files onto the dark web. While our investigation continues, there are currently no signs that financial or banking data has been taken. And the personal data stolen in itself is not sufficient to enable identity theft. Although when you hear what it is, you'll maybe question that uh, and financial fraud. The raw data we have analyzed today so far is incomplete and hard to understand. Okay, we'll get back to that because I thought that was an interesting thing that they said. A bit later in their released statement, they start quoting MetaBank CEO David Coxcar. And, and so they wrote and he his quotes saying, Anyone who downloads this data from the dark web, which is more complicated than searching for information on a public Internet forum and attempts to profit from it, is committing a crime. The Australian Federal Police have said law enforcement will take swift action against anyone attempting to benefit, exploit or commit criminal offenses using stolen MetaBank customer data. We continue to work closely with the Australian Federal Police, who are focused as part of Operation Guardian on preventing the criminal misuse of this data. Again, he says, I unreservedly apologize to our customers. We remain committed to fully and transparently communicating with customers, and we will continue to continue, I'm sorry, continue to contact customers whose data has been released on the dark web. Okay, at the end of the statement, MetaBank then, and the statement goes on and on and on at like a great length, they enumerate the sobering details of what they believe the Revil gang both obtained and a little bit of what they did not obtain. So on the daunting bit that they did get, they said the name, date of birth, address, phone number, and email address. For around 9.7 million current and former customers and some of their authorized representatives. This figure represents around 5.1 million MetaBank customers, 2.8 million AHM customers, and around 1.8 million international customers. Also, Medicare numbers for AHM customers, though not the expiration dates, passport numbers, and visa 
uh, the travel visa details for international student customers, though, again, not expiration dates, health claims data for around 160,000 Metabank customers, around 300,000 AHM customers, and around 20,000 international customers. This includes service provider name and location, where customers received certain medical services, and codes associated with diagnosis and procedures administered. Additionally, around 5,200 My Home Hospital that's MHH patients, have had some personal and health claims data accessed, and around 2,900 next of kin of these patients have had some contact details accessed. Also, health provider details, including names, provider names, and addresses. So, you know, wow, (laughs) A, a huge breach. On the flip side, they said that Revil did not access primary identity documents such as driver's licenses for MetaBank and AHM resident customers. MetaBank did not collect primary identity documents for resident customers except in exceptional circumstances. Revil also did not access health claims data for extras services such as dental, physio, optical, and psychology, and they did not access credit card and banking details. Okay, but Wow, they did, still got a lot, right? Lots of stuff on 9.0 million individuals. What most caught my attention was their statement that, quote, the raw data that we have analyzed today so far is incomplete and hard to understand. What occurs to me is that a raw, unorganized dump of data concerning 9.7 million current and past customers is far less actionable than an organized, searchable online database containing the same information. In other words, it's almost entirely the structure of the data. I mean, that much data that gives it meaning and makes it useful. If if Revil grabbed raw data files without formatting templates and indexes into the data, if the database is highly relational in nature and deeply depends upon the the interrelationships of pieces of it and the indexes into it, in order to pull it together into something coherent, then the release of a massive blob of raw and disorganized data where there's nothing to make clear what pieces go with which might be much less damaging than it at first appears, which is interesting. It sort of says that, you know, while the data is in place, it's actually useful to the organization that owns it and that, that, you know, knows how to interpret it. But if you just grab a static blob, a static file, then there may not be, I mean, it's all there, but if you can't like find all the little bits and pieces which get pulled together by having this data understood by the, by the database and databases that contain it, then, you know, it's probably not so useful to anyone. Anyway, I'm just, you know, interesting to have this actually happen. Aha. Okay, Leo? Yes. I couldn't resist giving this story, this short bit of news, the heading, 
is nothing sacred. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because the official website of the Vatican was push off, pushed offline last Wednesday. Oh, by a DDoS attack. It's nothing sacred. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm sure Father Robert had a late night that night. I <laughs> bet. Yep. It was pro-Russian hacktivists. Hmm. Um, as And I had to look this up. CNA, all right? Yeah. The Catholic News Agency. Oh, well, there you go. They're uh, serious. CNA, the Catholic News Agency, pointed out the attack came... A day after Moscow criticized Pope Francis's latest condemnation of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So, no, nothing is sacred. Mm-hmm. And if the Vatican says, Putin, you are bad, well, get ready to be blasted off the Internet for a while. Um, okay. Uh, Mozilla yanks a no longer trusted route as we know actually not only mozilla but everybody else uh, because we covered this through the years web browsers are extremely reticent okay it's not the web browsers right it's the people who manage them but you know the web browser teams i should have said are extremely reticent to remove root certificates actually leo maybe one day web browsers themselves will be sentient and we'll then decide whether they whether they should trust their root certificates. I'm sorry, Dave. I can't go there. <laughs> I don't trust that website no. any longer, and you shouldn't either. Okay, so they're reticent to remove root certificates from their trusted root stores because doing so immediately renders invalid and not trusted any and all outstanding certificates which have been previously signed by that certificate's authority using their matching private key. This effectively, pulling the the trust from the root, effectively puts the certificate authority out of business overnight. And, you know, as we know, this has happened a few times since the start of the podcast, and it's always interesting. In this case, the certificate authority in question is an apparently shady Panamanian firm called TrustCore. Nearly a month ago, long-simmering questions about TrustCore were brought to a boil by a piece in the Washington Post whose headline was, quote, Mysterious Company with Government Ties Plays Key Internet Role. TrustCore Systems vouches for the legitimacy of websites, but its physical address is a UPS store in Toronto. <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> oh, oh, boy. No. That'll, that'll get your attention. Here's just a sampling of the juicy bits from the Washington Post's reporting. And for what it's worth, I've got the link in the show notes. I really recommend, you know, any of our listeners who enjoy gossip uh, based on in, in facts, this thing is just, this reads like, like you couldn't make this up. Okay. The Washington Post wrote, the company's Panamanian registration records show that it has the identical slate of officers, agents, and partners as a spyware maker identified this year as an affiliate of Arizona-based Packet Forensics, which 
public contracting records and company documents show has sold communications interception services to U.S. government agencies for more than a decade. One of those Trust Corps partners has the same name as a holding company managed by Raymond Solino, who was quoted in a 2010 Wired article as a spokesman for Packet Forensics. Solino also surfaced in a 2021, I'm sorry, in 2021 as a contact for another company, Global Resource Systems, that caused speculation in the tech world when it briefly activated and ran more than 100 million previously dormant IP addresses assigned decades earlier to the Pentagon. The Pentagon reclaimed the uh, the digital territory months later, and it remains unclear, wrote the Post, what the brief transfer was about. But researchers said the activation of those IP addresses could have given the military access to a huge amount of Internet traffic without revealing that the government was receiving it. And our listeners may recall that we talked about this weird event at the time, noting how odd it was that this previously dormant and DOD-reserved block of IPv4 address space was suddenly being routed and tied to some random private company no one had ever heard of. Anyway, the post continues. Trust Corps products include an email service that claims to be end-to-end, end-to-end encrypted, though experts consulted by the Washington Post said they found evidence to undermine that claim. Researchers said that a test version of the email service also included spyware <laughs> developed by a Panamanian company related to packet forensics. Google later banned all software containing that spyware code from its app store. A person familiar with packet forensics work confirmed that it had u- that it had used Trust Core's certificate process and its email service MessageSafe to intercept communications and help the U.S. government catch suspected terrorists. Speaking on the condition of anonymity to discuss confidential practices, the person said, yes, Packet Forensics does that. And come on. (laughs) The name Packet Forensics should be an obvious enough... Should tell you everything you need to know, right? Uh, Yes. Yes. About the company's intentions. Remember, any device that's holding a certificate which is able to sign other end certificates is thereby able to intercept any and all TLS-secured traffic bound for any remote web server. It accepts the connection, the, the TLS connection, examines the domain being requested, creates and signs a TLS certificate on the fly, and returns it to the browser. In this case, so long as all web browsers contained the TrustCore CA root certificate, they would happily accept that on-the-fly signed certificate. So the connection to the intercept middle box, as they're called, would be encrypted, where the middle box would decrypt the TLS data for completely in-the-clear 
analysis. It's a man-in-the-middle-box attack. It, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. The middle box would then initiate its own connection to the actual destination server so that its interception was invisible while it continued to surveil all of the oh intercepted browser's God. traffic. <laughs> oh, dear. So it's what is really, I mean, it's heartwarming to see how long the thread was in the Google groups back and forth while they explained very patiently to the Trust Corps representative who kept trying to rebut all of their evidence that, you know, uh, we're going to pull the plug on you. Yeah. Because uh, this is not this yeah. is not okay. How'd yeah. they get yeah. in yeah. the I mean, first place? That's my question. Well, I mean, there it, it, apparently, if you have enough money, there was a quote somewhere later in this long Washington Post article. If you had enough money, basically, you could buy yourself certificate authority privileges, and 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 you know, essentially, they don't want to deny a company just out of hand who, like, passes all the requirements and certifications and looks like they're going to be a reputable and reliable certificate authority, is like, well, you know, why should we say no to them? So I would would have hoped there was a better way to vet certificate authorities, given the power that it gives them. I, I know. And, you know, Mozilla currently recognizes 166 root certificates but no longer the three from Trust Corps. Oh, good. Our really long-time listeners may recall that episode. The Hong which, Kong which, Post Office episode. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to say no more. I know exactly where you're going. That followed my chance discovery of what was then the explosion in certificate authorities in Firefox's root store. The time before when I had looked, there were like seven or eight certificate authorities now there appeared to be hundreds uh and as i said at the time this is inherently not good all web browsers are trusting any certificate signed by the owners of any of these root certs um it makes it an inherently unstable system but in fairness You'd have to say that things have gone much better, certainly than I expected. The industry has been amazingly effective at policing itself and the events, you know, uh, of these trusted root store abuses have been very few and far between. You know, it's an obvious privilege to be granted certificate authority rights. It's a license, essentially, to print money. But only so long as the certificate authority's signature means something. Um, okay, so the Washington Post's story is not behind any paywall, and it reads, as I said, like someone's imaginative fiction. Being, it's you know, well researched and backed by facts. I've got a link, as I said, in the show notes for anyone who's curious to know more. Uh, and also, I have a link to the Google Group's discussion. Uh, which sounds pretty good. I got to read that. Oh, yeah. All of the industry's participants, including Trust Tours, you know, Trust Corps representative was there trying to rebut this. But ultimately, they lost the argument because the evidence was just there. Yeah. You know, it just it went on and on and on. And they said, look, sorry, but, uh, you know, we, we, you, we can no longer trust you to sign anything. This initial and, uh, the, the kickoff post has 34 references footnoted references that's a pretty good start 
Yep. You know, that's uh, yep. that's not just some off the cuff. I think this no. is a problem. I, again, the, uh, you have to you have to take your hat off to these guys. They do not yank this privilege casually. Yeah. You, I mean, you really, you know, they, they they fret and worry and you know. Uh, Make sure that they, that this guy, you know, that it wasn't a one-off sort of. Uh, in fact, there's almost a smoking gun connecting Trust Corps to a spyware. Yes. Uh, yes. I mean, it's it's pretty bad. I mean, yes. A UPS, yeah. a UPS post post box. In t- oh Toronto. my god! <laughs> Holy I, cow! I Holy yeah. cow! Uh. Oh, here's the Trust Corps response. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm going to read this. That's that's some good late night reading. Yeah, thank you. It Steve. really is good. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so well, one more, and then we'll take our next break. While we're on the subject of crucial certificates and certificate management, last Wednesday, the 30th, an an internal Google report, which was originally created on the on the 11th of November, was made public, and two days later on Friday, the security firm Rapid Seven pulled the pieces together. Google's report is titled. Platform Certificates Used to Sign Malware. And under technical details of Google's report, they said, a platform certificate is the application signing certificate used to sign the Android application on the system image. The Android application runs with a highly privileged user ID, android.uid.system. Basically, you know, it's complete. It's like the root and holds system permissions, including permissions to access user data. Any other application signed with the same certificate can declare that it wants to run with the same user ID, giving it the same level of access to the Android operating system. In other words, it's a full penetration of Android security. Digging a bit deeper, we find that the Android security team discovered several malware samples in the wild that were signed by platform certificates issued by major vendors, including Samsung, LG, MediaTek, and RevoView. After discovering the incident, the Android security team worked with the affected companies to revoke and rotate the leaked platform certs. What I liked... I liked what Rapid7 had to say about this because what they said made a lot of sense about what didn't make a lot of sense about the whole escapade. Here's what they wrote. They said on November 30th, 2022, a Google report initially filed on November 11th was made public. The report contained 10 different platform certificates and malware samples, uh, Sample SHA-256 hashes, where the malware sample had been signed by a platform certificate. The application signing certificate used to sign the Android application of, of the system image. Applications, they wrote, signed with platform certificates can therefore run with the same level of privileges as the Android application, yielding system privileges on the operating system without user input. Google has recommended 
that affected parties should rotate. I bet they've recommended that affected parties should rotate their platform certificate. However, platform certificates are considered very sensitive, Rapid7 wrote, and the source of these certificates is unknown at this time. They said the use of platform certificates to sign malware indicates that a sophisticated adversary has gained privileged access to very sensitive code signing certificates. Any application signed by these certificates could gain complete control over the victim device. Rapid7 does not have any information that would indicate a particular threat actor group as being responsible. But historically, these types of techniques have been preferred by state-sponsored actors, meaning, right, like those with, like at the top of the food chain. That said, they wrote, a triage-level analysis of the malicious applications reported shows that the signed applications are adware, a malware type generally considered less sophisticated. This finding suggests that these platform certificates may have been widely available as state-sponsored actors tend to be more subtle in their approach to highly privileged malware. Okay, so some low-end malware adware was somehow signed by by like the most closely guarded private keys belonging to some of Android's largest and most reputable vendors. Either those closely signed private keys escaped or somehow those still resident keys were used to sign the malware. Either way, the fact that malware was signed means that something went wrong. You know, what's weird is that any agency that somehow obtains the ability to get any malware signed by major platform keys is not going to waste that awesome privilege on easily discovered adware. They would treasure that capability and hold it close, choosing to reserve its use for only highly targeted infiltration, specifically so that it never was discovered. Because as soon as it is, it's going to be rendered, you know, it's going to be neutered by having the keys rotated. Now, thanks to the casual misuse of a collection of certificates, that, you know, somehow escaped from something, whoever or whatever gained the ability to sign those certs has almost certainly lost those rights. None of the signatures of those certificates will be trusted going forward. Given what we know, none of this makes any sense. So we have a mystery, but, you know, it's been dealt with. Thank Hmm. goodness. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. And after we tell our listeners... Why we're here, Leo, we're going to find out what state has banned the use of TikTok. And I, I think and, I know the answer, but I'll, uh, I'll wait and hear. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I think it's only for government employees, not for, That's the, that not is, for you That is me. true. Well, you, yeah, you can't ban it statewide, of course. You couldn't. Still. You couldn't. No. Yeah. Thank God. <laughs> yeah. What would my son do without all his millions of uh, fans on TikTok? I ask you. This episode of Security Now is brought to you by Thinkst Canary. Hey, I'm a fan of this. Let me show you this. This is the Thinkst Canary honeypot in uh, the palm of my hand. I love this device. 
We have said many times that a security is a layered approach, right? And a lot of people focus on perimeter security, keeping bad guys out of your network. But what do you do when they're in your network? How do you know if they're in your network? You might even have a zero trust thing going, but that doesn't mean somebody's not in there browsing around trying to break through that zero trust barrier. You need this. You need the things to canary. Inside sits inside your network. Little black box for those of you uh, who are just listening. It's about, it looks like an external USB drive. One of those, you know, bus powered small little things. Got two connections. One for plugging in the the uh, power, the grid, uh, the mains. And the other is, of course, an Ethernet jack. By the way, there is no reset button anywhere near the boot on this, on this Ethernet plug. Uh, but what does it do? Well... Just depends. You go to your Canary console, and you could say that's a Windows uh, uh, XP server with port one thirty nine and one thirty eight wide open. Uh, or you could say, oh no no no, this is in fact that's what this is. My Synology NAS uh, ready to log you in with DSM seven and the exact right MAC address too. All of that is available to you in your Canary console. So you could be a SCADA device, you could be a Windows or Linux server, you could have a Christmas tree of services turned on or just a few hand-picked, you could put them on Active Directory, and the whole idea is if somebody has penetrated your network, they're going to be looking for things like this. They don't look vulnerable, they look valuable, and when they find it, and this is the key, you're going to be alerted. That's the key, right? It's like fishing, like with the F kind of fishing. You're putting a little bait out there with this invisible hook. They won't even know they've triggered it until you go searching for them, and that's beautiful. The services on the Canary are designed to elicit further investigation, shall we say, at which point they betrayed themselves. Your canary notifies you. And by the way, you don't get a cascade of irrelevant alerts. You get just the alert that matters. Somebody tried to log into your faux Synology server. Here's the login and password they used. You can order, configure, and deploy your canaries throughout your network. By the way, there's more you can do with these. They have cloud-based birds now. You can also set up canary tokens, little tripwires all over your network that are just files, PDFs, XLS, uh, spreadsheets, doc files with with provocative names, but they aren't really files. When, when the bad guy uh, attempts to open them, uh, the canary says, hello, it calls home, phones home. It's really neat. Every canary hosts realistic services, looks and acts exactly like its namesake down to the MAC address. Windows file server, a router, a Linux web server. So brilliant. This is Honeypot's made easy for anyone. And it's easy to set yourself up. Every customer gets their own hosted management console. So you can configure settings, manage your things to canaries, handle events. They're constantly reporting in, providing an up-to-the-minute report on their status. But you don't need to monitor that because you're going to get pinged if something happens. But if you want to see, you know, like, oh, what's my canary doing? You can check. I'm just sitting here waiting, just looking provocative. <laughs> Even customers with hundreds of canaries sometimes report, well, we only get a handful of events every year because most of the time there's no problem, right? But when an incident does occur, when a bad guy is in your system, 
they will tell you. You'll get a, an alert, and you'll get an alert the way you want it, via email. You can get text messages, Slack notifications. The Canary support, uh, they have an API. They have webhooks. They support syslog. If you're, if you're a syslogger, um, it's as easy as possible. The problem really comes down to most of the time, once a hacker has penetrated your defenses, you don't know they're in there. And they can be wandering around for months. On average, 91 days before they're discovered. Three minutes of setup, no ongoing overhead, nearly zero false positives, and you can detect attackers before they dig in. That's why Thinks Canary hardware, VM, and cloud-based canaries are deployed and loved on all seven continents. This created by guys who have taught governments, militaries, companies how to break into systems. The best testers in the world. These red team guys have known and learned everything there is to do about attacking, and they put all that knowledge into making something attackers can't resist. That's the point. It's like ice cream, baby. They can't go buy it without trying it. Canary.tools slash twit. Pricing will vary depending on how many you get. I'll give you an example. Five canaries. That'd be good for, you know, a small business. A bank may have hundreds, but a small business, five canaries. 7500 bucks a year. With that, you get, uh, you know, you sit on the canary, you break it in any way, of course, immediately replaced. You get your own hosted console. You get support. You get maintenance. And if you use the code TWIT, T-W-I-T, in the How Did You Hear About Us box, you're going to get 10% off the price of your canary forever, for life. To further seal the deal, because maybe you're going, well, I don't know. They've got a two-month, 60-day money-back guarantee for a full refund. So there's really no penalty just, just testing these. Get them and see. You're going to love them. If you go to canary.tools slash love, you'll see all the all the people who've over the years said, man, this is the best solution. Thank you, Canary, et cetera, et cetera. If you're ready to buy, go to canary, C-A-N-A-R-Y dot tools slash twit. Enter the offer code twit. And how did you hear Bass Box? Get that 10% off for life. Uh, and that way they know you saw it here, which is pretty important to, to Steve and me. Canary.tools slash twit. This thing is brilliant. Your business your enterprise, your network needs them. They need them. Canary.tool slash twit. Thank you. Canary. Thank you, Thinkst. Now back to the Steve Gibson show already oh, in progress. Okay. Yes. <laughs> uh, so here's one for you. Last week, South Dakota's governor, Christy Nome. Oh, good old Christy. Ah, uh, uh, yes. Signed Executive Order 2022-10 which bans all use of the Chinese social media platform TikTok by state government agencies, employees, and contractors. The executive order's news release stated that the order is in response to the growing national security threat posed by TikTok due to its data-gathering operations on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party. You know, Leo, you, you got to keep your eye on those commies. Uh, the press release quoted Governor Nome saying, uh, wow, South Dakota will have no part in the intelligence gathering operations of nations who hate us. The Chinese Communist Party, she says, uses information that it gathers on TikTok, apparently from watching Hank make things, to <laughs> manipulate 
the American people yeah. being manipulated by Hank Salt. Yes. And they gather data off the devices across the platform because, she says, because our serious duty to protect the private data of South Dakota citizens, we must take this action immediately. I hope that other states will follow South Dakota's lead and Congress should take broader action as well. The order took effect immediately and applies to all employees and agencies of the state of South Dakota. No more TikTok for you. No. Including persons and entities who contract with the state, Leo, commissions and authorities or agents thereof. And thinking about that, you know, I thought I, I really do wish that I would still be alive in another hundred years to see what the Internet has become by then. You know, will it have succeeded in pulling the world together or will the world's fearful leaders have established borders and regional controls just as they have everywhere oh, else? Wouldn't that be a terrible thing for the Internet? I mean, that's just what we it, don't want, right? Yes, and it seems to be happening. It's it's getting chopped up and fragmented and and regulated. And now, unfortunately, everybody is like suing everyone because they're not happy with the outcome of you know of using it. Speaking of which, Albania has blamed its IT staff. Remember <laughs> the drama that we, we we covered back in July, where Iran retaliated against Albania by melting down their government networks. Then Albania retaliated back, by, which I guess is redundant, uh, by severing diplomatic ties with Iran and sweeping into the just-closed Iranian embassy looking for anything that Iran might have not sufficiently destroyed before leaving. Also recall that it turned out that Iran had been rummaging around in Albania's networks since April of 2012, so for more than 15 months without ever being detected. They need a well, thinked canary. They, I thought that they, as I was, as really I was pulling this that. together. Yeah. I thought, you know, someone needs to give those Albanians a clue. Well, who is to blame for all this? It must be someone's fault, right? And... You know, we can't blame the vendors of the buggy systems. After all, they provided patches for some of the problems. Usually, eventually, again, we've got to blame someone. So, Albania has decided that it was all the fault of the IT staff. Oh. And so now they're in trouble. Oh, boy. Albanian prosecutors have charged and asked for the house arrest of five government employees. The prosecutors say the five accused failed to apply security updates to government systems and also failed to detect the hackers that had been wandering around inside their network as far back as April 2021. Okay, so maybe the IT guys were seriously negligent, but we know that's not necessarily the case. If I may segue for a moment, a perfect example of Albanian-scale negligence not being necessary is the news that the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's Cyber Safety Review Board recently said that it intends to review attacks carried out by the Lapsus Extortion Group and will publish a report detailing 
how Lapsus managed to bypass a broad range of security measures without the use of advanced malware and managed to breach a large number of high-profile targets, including Cisco, Microsoft, NVIDIA, Samsung, Uber, Rockstar Games, and others. These companies are not firing their IT department staff because they recognize that it's possible to do nothing wrong and still be breached. Okay, in Albania's case, it could just as easily have been His Excellency, the President of the Republic of Albania, who clicked a link in a phishing email to invite those crafty Iranian cyber warriors to come for a visit. And who knows what managerial opposition or budgetary constraints the Intrepid Five might have faced in their department. IT departments are notoriously understaffed, overworked, and unappreciated. And IT and IT people are just like everyone else, right? There are good ones and there are bad ones. Which are they? We don't know. What I wonder, though, is who they're going to get to fill those vacated jobs with the risk of prosecution oh, point with the risk of prosecution for attempting to do a job that might be impossible and knowing what happened to the last five guys uh i would be surprised to i would not be surprised to learn that those it staff positions are difficult to fill so <laughs> you know I, I i would be careful you know uh, how you deal with uh, problems like this in the future. Wow. Um, we do have some good news on the memory-safe languages front. Um, since the August release of Android 13, which was the first Android where a majority of new code added to the project was written in memory-safe languages, including Rust, Java, and Kotlin, Google noted that since shifting its focus to memory-safe languages, the number of memory safety vulnerabilities reported in the Android OS has dropped to less than half of comparable counts. So that's good news for memory-safe languages. You know, I, I've, all, I've always been saying that we're never going to get our systems fixed if we keep messing with them, you know, this is, of course, the big problem with Windows is Microsoft refuses to stop and, and, and they just keep doing stuff. Well, when you do new stuff, you're going to have new problems. And so the only thing you could do would be to start, you know, using, I mean, high quality memory safe languages for all the new stuff you do. And that's what. Uh, Google's been doing with Android, and they're seeing a, a precipitous drop. I have a chart in the show notes that, that shows successive years of Android releases, 2018, 19, 20, 21, and, and 2022. And, I mean, it is really looking good. So, you know, something has to change in order for these problems to change, and empowering programmers with languages that help them uh, makes all the you know all kinds of sense. I'm we, I'm kind of surprised Kotlin is so low because, boy, everybody is so excited about Kotlin. Yeah, um, it's still a tiny fraction. Of I think the overall I think it's it's because it's just the very it's start. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Yeah. And isn't Kotlin the one that runs on top of the Java VM? I think... It, I think ultimately, it, um, I, at some point, Java's got to be. I think has to be in there. Although I see Rust and C and C plus plus. Yeah, but, but uh, the Google at least the last time I looked at Android development, the underneath underlying stuff is Java. So right. I don't know. Yeah, Kotlin would make right. sense as a virtual machine for a Java VM or a front right. end for a Java VM. I, I think it is a a different language but, on top of. Oh, the it's Java a wonderful VM. language. I mean, it's a very yeah. It's for the JVM. That's right. Right. It's a great cool. language, and I would guess uh, probably more memory safe. Uh, has null safety and stuff like that. So, right, yeah, it's pretty looking. I uh, yeah. know, the, for for me the 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 prettiest looking language I ever did any serious work in was Pascal. It was just it was just it was pretty, and you could come back later, and it made sense to you. Yes, it was very uh, concrete. Yeah, and the least pretty was fourth. Oh. You fourth is a write only language. Fourth is you fun, can stare at yes. that and have no idea what the hell is going on. Win to Dow is one of the hosts on All About Android. Android developer loves Kotlin, and I remember when they announced that they were going to support Kotlin first class. And this was four years ago or five years ago at Google I/O. The developers cheered so. I, I have high hopes. Good. Uh, don't want to see all that C. Look how big the C slice is. I know. Talk about it's, not memory safe. Wow. And C++ is yeah. like, together, they're almost half. Yeah. Yeah, the other half is Java. Big slice for Rust, though. That's also good. Good news. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we're going to answer another question. Have those Black Hat USA 2022 talk videos, which were recorded back in August finally been published why am i asking you might wonder probably because because the not. answer is yes <laughs> oh they have they have been yes i have a link in the show notes for anyone who's interested right below that graphic you were just showing it brings you up to a playlist of all the black hat 2022 videos and those nice. are always interesting for for hackers and they're all on youtube which is great yep we do have another chrome uh, zero day biting the dust, which brings the total up to nine for Google. Uh, it was a type confusion bug in Chrome's JavaScript V8 engine. Uh, it was discovered internally by one of two, uh, Google's tag researchers, but being a zero day, it was found because somebody was using it. So, wow, there, you know, there's a lot of pressure to get into Chrome, it being the majority browser now. Uh, and this was another way that's now been foreclosed. I, at some point over the weekend, I restarted Chrome, and it came up with an announcement of, yay, you got a new version. It's like, oh, okay, good. Okay. Uh, the Verge's coverage of Anchor's UFI, spelled E-U-F-Y, IoT cameras, did not pull any punches. Their headline read, Anchors Eufy lied to us about the security of its security cameras. And then the subhead said, despite claims of only using local storage with its security cameras, Eufy has been caught uploading identifiable footage to the cloud. And it's even possible to view the camera streams using VLC. Okay, since, since I can't improve on the Verge's coverage and reporting, here's what they wrote at the, the beginning of it. It was long, but this will give you the idea. They wrote, Anchor, and a company we all like, 
has built a, a remarkable reputation for quality over the past decade, said The Verge, building its phone charger business into an empire spanning all sorts of portable electronics, including the Eufy home security cameras we've recommended over the years, said The Verge. Eufy's commitment to privacy is remarkable. It promises your data will be stored locally, that it, quote, never leaves the safety of your home, unquote, that its footage only gets transmitted with end-to-end military-grade encryption. Okay, at this point, you start to have to worry, right, when someone says military-grade. I I never want to see that phrase again. No. Every advertiser puts it in there. I just take it out and say AES-256 or something. Frightening, yeah. And they said that they will only send the footage straight to your phone, unquote. So, The Verge wrote, you can imagine our surprise to learn you can stream video from a Eufy camera from the other side of the country with no encryption. Okay, now, The Verge's coverage of this might seem somewhat harsh, but they then show a snapshot of the marketing for the Eufy camera which makes all of these claims quite clear, which then makes the reality of what Anchor is doing somewhat stunning. So in the show notes, I have this snapshot, which is right off of the Eufy marketing page. They said, our technology keeps your privacy safe. Okay, now, I'm not sure that privacy can be kept safe. Um, so the wording of the headline. Yeah, like, you're okay, not well, safe, got- but your privacy is. <laughs> yeah. So, but they got two, they got the words in there that they wanted. That's the main thing, yeah. Your privacy and safe. So, okay. So, so maybe actually whoever wrote this didn't even understand what they were saying. I don't know, but that might be their way out of this corner. So they've got three big icons, local storage, and we've got kind of your house and there's a server with a, I don't know, a power symbol on it. And it says, for your eyes only, home is where your data belongs. With secure local storage, your private data never leaves the safety of your home and is accessible by you alone. Okay, now, consider that in the context of the fact that it is you can stream it from the other side of the world with VLC. <laughs> okay. Second icon, end-to-end encryption, peaking prohibited. All recorded footage is encrypted on device and sent straight to your phone, and only you have the key to decrypt and watch the footage. Data during transmission is encrypted. None of that is true. On-device AI, oh, everything in-house. Our super smart AI, apparently much better than their super dumb crypto, uh, is built into every Eufy device. It analyzes your recorded footage without the need to risk your privacy by sending it to the cloud. Okay? Like, all of this is untrue. Stunningly. Wow. Wow. I mean, it's just, it's like incredible. None of it's true. So, uh, Get ready for the lawsuits. Uh, And how? The Verge continued, okay, the, the Verge said, worse. It's not yet clear how widespread this might be, because instead of addressing it head on, 
the company falsely claimed to The Verge that it wasn't even possible. On Thanksgiving Day, InfoSec consultant Paul Moore and a hacker who goes by Wasabi both alleged that Anchor's Eufy cameras can stream encryption-free through the cloud just by connecting to a unique address at Eufy's cloud servers with the fee with the free VLC media player. So, I mean, there shouldn't even be cloud servers, right? What? What? It never leaves your house. It goes straight to your phone. What do you need the cloud for? But apparently there's a cloud and all your video is there. And you don't even need an app. You just use VLC to, and give it the URL. When asked, anchor point blank to confirm or deny that, the company categorically denied it. Quote, I can confirm that it is not possible to start a stream and watch live footage using a third-party player such as VLC, said Brett White, a senior PR manager at Anchor. Oh, well, he knows there. Yeah. And, of course, that's exactly whose opinion you want regarding anything potentially I, I, damaging. I tried, but I couldn't do it. <laughs> How, oh. What is this VLC? Yeah, I, I clicked the link, and it just said hello. Uh, wow. The Verge, they wrote, but The Verge can now confirm that's not true. That is what Brett said. This week, we repeatedly watched live footage from two of our own Eufy cameras, which, of course, they had been recommending in the past, so they probably had some, using that very same VLC media player from across the United States proving that Anchor has a way to bypass encryption and access these supposedly cured cameras through the cloud. They said there is some good news. There's no proof yet that this has been exploited in the wild. Oh, great. Now everyone's going to jump on that. I don't know and how you way, would know. I mean, you couldn't. There's no way to prove or right, disprove. It's, right. You know, yeah. suddenly the cameras are getting hot. I wonder why. I do think you need to know the serial number of the camera. So that is true. That's some that protection, true. right? They, they 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 said the way we initially obtained the address required required logging in with a username and password before Eufy's website will cough up the encryption free stream. Again, none of this. None. I mean, like what they're doing completely belies what they said they were doing. I mean, the fact that you have a, a like you log into the cloud. Well, then the video must be there. It's not in your house. I mean, it just this like just this make your head explode. If you think about this, nothing they're claiming matches the services that they're offering. So they said, uh, uh, but it also gets worse. They said, Yuffie's best practices appear to be so shoddy that bad actors might be able to figure out the address of a camera's feed because that address largely consists of your camera's serial number encoded in Base64, something you can easily reverse with a simple online calculator. The address also includes a Unix timestamp you can easily create, plus a token that Yuffie's servers don't actually seem to be validating. We changed our token to arbitrary potato, and it still worked. Thank you, The Verge. And a four-digit random hex whose 65536 combinations could easily be brute-forced. And uh, I'll note that other people have already done this, and they did it. So 
Mandy, a Mandiant vulnerability engineer, Jacob Thompson, tells The Verge, this is definitely not how it should be designed. Yeah, no kidding. For one thing, serial numbers don't change. So a bad actor could give or sell or donate a camera to Goodwill and quietly keep watching the feeds. But also, he points out, the cameras don't tend to keep don't tend to keep their serial numbers secret. Some stick them on the box and sell them at Best Buy, yes, including Yuffie. On the plus side, Yuffie's serial numbers are long at 16 characters and aren't just an increasing number. We've seen that done before, not here. So, quote, you're not going to be able to just guess at IDs and begin hitting them, says Mandiant Red Team consultant Dylan Frank calling it a possible saving grace of this disclosure. It doesn't sound quite as bad as user ID 1000, then you try 101, 102, 103, and so forth. Anyway, I'm reminded of the fact that I don't have a single connected video camera anywhere within my environment, and that your wife, Lisa, Leo, early on, intuited the inherent yes. dangers of having unknowable video capture technology, which is what all of this is, lurking around the house. You know, in a TNO, trust no one world, they, the simple though impractical truth is, unless you designed it yourself, you don't know what it does. And I should add that due to the crazy complexity of the things we design today, even if you did design it yourself, you may still not know what it what it, that it does. What you think you think you what it does? What whatever? Right. Anyway. What you said, man. Yeah. Right on. <laughs> <laughs> the point is, okay. maybe it isn't an easy thing to exploit, but they completely misrepresented what was going on. Oh my God! Yes. Uh, nothing that they said about it was. was and they must was, have known true. better. I mean, they. I mean, it's not an accidental mistake disclosure the one the one out i had was when you have a situation like a anchor was apparently in where everybody loved their power supplies which they probably themselves actually did create there's a tendency to go buy other companies right. in order to expand well yourself yeah 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 and so it probably is like well we got all this money from power supplies who looks good Oh, let's you know, let's get Eufy. They, right. you know, they, they make everything so, too. They make headphones. They make all all kinds of stuff. Anchor has a sound core division. They yeah. exactly as you say. They found success and they then expanded. Yep. And so they're the they the anchor people unfortunately are tying their good name to products that they can't actually vouch for but which are making the money now and they've got Brett out there on the front line saying, "What? What link?" I don't have a link. Uh, where, where, where'd you get that link? That's illegal for you to have that link. I tried, but I couldn't do it. <laughs> okay, so this is moderately random, but not too far afield for this podcast. Everyone knows of my passion for coding, but I predate electronic computers, and before computers was electronics. Although coding has taken over, electronics will always be my first love. So in addition to coding... I occasionally do a bit of tinkering, hacking, and designing with electronics. At some point in the past, some Googling must have taken me to a place called Seed Studio. That's S-E-E-E-D 
spelled with three E's, seedstudio.com. I purchased something from them, I don't now remember what, and as a consequence was promptly added to their periodic mailing list. In this case, I don't mind the spam, because the mail contains photos of the stuff they're promoting, and my jaw spends most of its time hanging down with my mouth open (laughs) over the insanely low cost of the technology that's currently available from China. It is truly astonishing. For example, a recent mailing showed the Seed Studio XIAO ESP32C3. It's a tiny module about the size of a quarter with 14 electrical connections, seven on either side, and what appears to be two tiny buttons and an LED. It also has a tiny USB-C connector, presumably for programming this little thing. And all of the software for doing so is open source. Its description says, Seed Studio XIAO ESP32C3 adopts new RISC-V architecture. Supporting both Wi-Fi and BLE wireless connections. On this thing? thing. On that thing? Wi-Fi, <laughs> Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. What? For Internet of Things applications, you will find it is flexible and suitable for all kinds of IoT scenarios. Okay. I was curious, so I looked into the chip this uses. The ESP32C3. It's a 32-bit RISC-V microprocessor, which includes a whole host of I.O. peripherals in addition to Wi-Fi and Bluetooth 5. It has cryptographic hardware accelerators that support AES-128-256, SHA hashes, RSA, HMAC, digital signatures, secure boot, and and has a hardware random number generator. And how much is it if you purchase just one? Four dollars and ninety nine cents. Oh my god! Oh my god! Five dollars for that, and that's like that is just typical of what this Seed Studio has for sale. Anyway, just don't try to bring it into South Dakota. That's all I'm saying. No, 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 no. That's that's outlawed. (laughs) It might have TikTok embedded on it. Uh, anyway that is so cool and risk everybody's very interested in this risk five this is the newest kind of open source uh digital architecture yes and license free right the reason they're not there's no arm on this is you have to pay arm for that and you're not going to sell something for five dollars that has this and everything else it has if if, if you have to pay some arm license it shows you what the arm tax is really if you think about it yeah and so risk and i mean risk five is it, it's a beautiful architecture it's been it's been like moving along for years and it's evolving and it has an absolutely mature open source free tool chain for doing stuff but none of that is why i'm i brought this up today although steve you could put your you know it could be a spin right hardware device does it have room for software? You could put SpinRite on it. You wouldn't have to use DOS or anything. You just plug it in and boot to it. Wonderful. $5. I'm just telling you. <laughs> I'm just telling you. All right. All yours. Okay. That's not why I'm telling anyone about this. I'm telling anyone about this because 
a month or two ago, maybe three, something in one of those mailings brought me up short because it was similarly stunning. And I thought you guys, our listeners, all needed to at least know about it. It got away from me when I went back to try to find it. I don't know. I didn't know where it went. But when their most recent mailing mentioned it again, I thought, okay, this time it's not getting away from me. Okay, get a load of this. It's called <clears throat> the Link Star H68K-1432 Multimedia Router. It has Wi-Fi 6, 4 gig of RAM, 32 gig of eMMC flash storage on board with an SD card slot for more. It's powered by a quad-core, 64-bit Cortex-A55 chip, an ARM G52-2EE GPU. There's a GPU because it can output HDMI 4K video at 60 frames what? per second. It ha- it, by the way, Leo, it's two and a half by three and a half inches. That's the size of that little <laughs> thing you, that, that you're looking at. It has a USB 3 port, two USB 2 ports, a USB Type-C that can be attached to a SATA 3 drive. On the router side, aside from its dual band 1200 megabits Wi-Fi 6, it also has four Ethernet ports. <laughs> I don't know how they it, fit them in. Individual interfaces, two running at up to two and a half gig, another two at one gig. It comes with Android 11 pre-installed, but also supports Ubuntu, Debian, Armbian, OpenWRT, and BuildRoot, which is used to build embedded Linux systems. I just thought of a new geek game we could play, Geek Price is Right. So what will this little pocket-sized fanless Wi-Fi 6 4 Ethernet interface router set you back? How about $119? Unbelievable. Wow. That's what got my attention. Th- th- that little NetGate SG1100 router that I love and use and have recommended, it's 189 And it only has three Ethernet interfaces and no Wi-Fi. This thing has four separate interfaces and Wi-Fi 6 and a ton more. Um, the fact that you can drop OpenWRT onto it and have an operating state-of-the-art router... With four ports, all you know, isolated individual subnets and Wi-Fi six for one hundred nineteen dollars. Could you put PF Sense on it? Do you think that I don't know? I that that's a question I have, and maybe one of our listeners will be interested to try. Again, it's it's hard to imagine this thing from the picture. It's two and a half inches by three and a half inches, and it's fanless. It's got a little heat sink on the bottom, multiple USB uh, ports. Uh, uh, 4K HDMI and, and, and a and a uh, SD card slot. It's just incredible for 119 in bucks. the palm of your hands. I want to be clear. I don't own one. I don't have time to own one, and I'm not vouching <laughs> for it. <laughs> I'm do not, not buy it. We're going to get do mad not, at you. Do, <laughs> that's right. I do. I'm, so I'm not vouching it for any for any way. Unlike the Zima board, which I was happy to vouch for, since I had several and I loved them, you're on your own with this thing if you should decide to take the plunge. For the right hardware tinkerer, this could be so much fun. And it's not very expensive. I had the link in the show notes, and 
It is episode 900's, this episode's GRC, GRC shortcut of the week. So grc.sc slash 900, that will take you to this thing's webpage where you can see for yourself. Anyway, I just, it was so cool, so inexpensive, it could be the perfect home router, four ports, and Wi-Fi 6 for $119. Really cool. Boy, yeah. we live in amazing times, Steve. Can you imagine we, if you were a young guy, you know, a teenager, you know, at the time building the portable dog killer, if you'd had something like Seed Studio available to you? You might have. Uh, unfortunately, I'd probably be bringing Elon's satellites down <laughs> if I had it. That's a good thing. Uh, it's a good thing you didn't have it. So Wow. Wow. I figured out how to fire the retro rockets. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Speaking of Elon, one last piece of lunacy. When asked during a scheduled Twitter space chat... This past Sunday, why he bought Twitter, Elon explained his decision as follows, and I'm not making this up. Quote, I can't exactly say why, because it's one of those things where it's like my biological neural nets said it is important to buy Twitter. And just like with a digital neural net, you can't really exactly explain why the neural net is able to understand an image or text. The collective result of the neural net says, this is an important decision, or this is the right action. And my biological neural net concluded that it was important to buy Twitter, and that if Twitter was not bought and steered in a good direction, it could be a danger for the future of civilization. And so... That's why I bought it. Wow. <laughs> oh, wow. Clear as mud, Elon. Yeah, Elon. So, okay, you're 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 passing the responsibility off to your brain whose operation you don't understand. I, I don't know what I'm doing or why I'm thinking uh, it, but <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, because you know, I'm a biological neural net just like those image recognizers, and we don't know how they work either. It's a so, puzzle whether he knows some, what he's saying is it is moronic, and he's saying it to just you know to confuse and 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 huh? distract Ooh. you, it's or if he actually Elon. believes it. Which I don't I don't know which is worse. <laughs> it's amazing. So I did not have time to make a comprehensive scan of my DMs. Uh, this week, uh, frankly, the, the, the DMs channel is becoming quite popular and it's uh, there's a lot to go through. I'm only going to share my own tweet from last Wednesday for those of my of our listeners here who don't follow me on Twitter. And there are many. I tweeted on Wednesday to all Security Now listeners. I'm currently listening to Alex Stamos on Wednesdays this week in Google. Alex has not let anyone get a word in edgewise because he has so much amazing information to share. Without reservation, I recommend, all caps, listening to this. It's fantastic, in all caps, exclamation point. Um, that tweet 
received about three times as many likes as my as any of my weekly security now notes postings tweets do, as well as thirteen replies and twelve retweets. Alex was amazingly wonderful. Thank you. And I just yeah. wanted to make sure I wanted like this is a, a reading a, or a listening assignment for all of our listeners. Last week's so what would that it would be November thirtieth. Um, if you uh, just go to Google twit.tv twit.tv slash twig will take you to the twig page. It's episode 692. So it'll be the first episode if you'd go right now. But even in a few weeks, it'll still be twit.tv slash twig episode 692. And, and you don't even have to wade through a bunch of crap in the beginning. No, I mean, like, there's they, no they, crap. They, like <laughs> Alex said, is, is this microphone on? And that's all it took. It was very meat. It rich density of information. It was. He was great. He's a wonderful guy, and I I really enjoyed him. Uh, and I'm hoping we can get him back because he had a lot to say. So, uh, on my end, to say that things are going well with Spinrite's alpha release testing would be an understatement, considering how poorly things could have easily gone. I'm still somewhat in shock that we're very close to having a final release. Uh, I have to, f- I have things to fix, but nothing major so far. Most, th- mostly people who are now really engaged and involved are like, keep asking for new features. And so it's like, oh, you know, I, I, that's really not what we should be doing now. So it's really looking good. There was one posting to the news group last week that I wanted to share because it makes a point that, I need to drive home not only for everyone's safety, but but it's part of the reason why I am so fired up about Spinrite's potential long-term future. This person posted this. He said, I have a ThinkPad Helix, and the SSD is a Samsung EVO 1 terabyte MSATA. So high-end, you know, Samsung EVO. That's all. That's the only brand I buy now. He said, when the Spinrite pre-release starts... It estimates 31.7 minutes for processing. However, a level 2 pass with no errors detected takes 2 hours and 56 minutes. Okay, so just shy of 3 hours. He says, so that's more than 5 times longer. It's actually almost 6 times longer, right? Uh, it guessed it, it estimated 31 minutes. It actually took 3 hours, so 6 times. He says, then the estimated time, he asks, is that normal? Okay, so I replied to him in the news group, we've found that whereas the fronts of spinning drives tend to be the fastest regions because they contain more sectors around their longer outer tracks, the fronts of many SSDs are conspicuously slow. We posit that this is due to the presence of much more on-the-fly error correction and data recovery. We first saw this using the ReadSpeed benchmark tool. One of my future plans is to locate these slow-to-read spots and selectively rewrite them to restore their speed by eliminating this unseen error correction and data recovery, which results in a significant reduction in SSD performance. I said to him, if you do discover that the front of that drive is quite slow, you could identify the slow region and run level three, which does a rewrite, over just that region, and it might very well speed it back up. 
I said, and that would likely also increase its reliability by solidifying those sectors which might be on the verge of transitioning from very slow to unrecoverable. He replied, I just did a level three on the entire drive with Alpha 4, and now Spinrite estimates the one terabyte drive will require 29.7 minutes and a full level two scan completed in 29 minutes and 50 seconds, which is an almost six times faster than it scanned a couple of days ago. He said, thank you for thank you so much for creating 6.1. So what that means is, to summarize this, he first did a, a simple read pass on that SSD in his ThinkPad. It took him three hours just to read all the sectors. He ran level three, a Spinrite level three, across the entire drive. Now that same process of simply doing a read scan takes 30 minutes, just shy of 30 minutes. So running a level three spin right on an SSD that had nothing technically wrong with it increased its speed by a factor of six on average across the entire SSD. Um, that's what we're seeing. So uh, this is the reason I'm I am very excited. There, what's happening is we, we are SSDs are having trouble reading their contents, but still able to. Yet it's revealed by a significant slowdown, which is going unnoticed. But how many times have we heard? that an SSD-based machine, which being solid state, you would think, right, it's solid state, uh, that an SSD-based machine doesn't seem to be as fast as it was when it was new. Um, that wouldn't seem logical, but this might be what's going on. So, as I said, one of the things I have in store once Spinrite 6.1 is launched and we start working immediately on 7 is to profile the performance the performance of mass storage media to locate and selectively repair sluggish spots. But for what it's worth, what anyone can do um, or will be able to do as soon as 6.1 is out is to give such drives a, sing a single level three pass, as this person who just posted did, which very well could significantly improve both the system's performance and its reliability by rewriting the drive's sectors to recharge those leaky storage capacity cells. So anyway, a cool outcome from uh, the the six one work. And Leo, yes, sir. Let's do our last uh, insert, and then we're going to uh, revisit. Unfortunately, LastPass you, again. <laughs> you call it an insert. I call it a cherished sponsor, bringing us oh, yeah. news you That's can use. <laughs> That's what I meant. Yeah, so I know you did. Uh, we're oh, talking Plex track, of course. Well, we'd actually love PlexTrack, the purple teaming platform. Um, they are the premier cybersecurity reporting and collaboration platform, completely transforming the way cybersecurity work gets done. Whether you're on a red team or a blue team or somewhere in the middle, a purple team, 
Aviva Magenta team? Are you ready to gain control of all your tools, all your data? Are you ready to build more actionable reports and focus on the right remediation? Are you working to mature your security posture? But I bet, and I think we all, uh, this is not unusual, struggle to optimize efficiency and facilitate collaboration within your team. That's what PlexTrack is all about. It's a powerful but very easy-to-use cybersecurity platform that centralizes all your security assessments, all your pen test reports, all your audit findings and vulnerability tracking. PlexTrack transforms the risk management lifecycle, letting your security team generate better reports faster, aggregate and visualize analytics, and collaboration on remediation in real time. And by the way, a message for the team, <laughs> you're going to love it. You're going to love it. It it saves you time. It makes it easier to get your job done. The PlexTrack platform addresses pain points across the entire spectrum of security team workflows and roles. Second to none for uh, managing offensive testing. Get that red team going here. And then reporting the security findings. You can put code samples, easily inserted screenshots, even videos can be added to any finding. Uh, you can import findings from all the major scanning tools, too. The, anything that you use, Nessus, Burp, whatever you use, you can export to custom templates with a click of a button, which means once you've got your template set up, your reports are uniform. They're easy for you to generate, a lot less typing. Uh, they get the job done. You know, it's it's really incredible. Analytics and service level agreement functions help you visualize your security posture so you can quickly assess and prioritize and ensure your tracking remediation efforts to show progress over time. Uh, great for compliance, too, for that reason. Built-in compatibility with the, all the industry-leading tools and frameworks, including vulnerability scanners, pen testing as a service platforms, bug bounty tools, adversary emulation plans. That mean you can improve the effectiveness and the efficiency of your current workflow, whatever it is. Robust integrations with Jira and ServiceNow ensure you're always closing the loop on the highest priority findings. I mean, I can go on and on. There are so many features. This is so much what you want. Enterprise security teams use PlexTrack to streamline their pen tests, their security assessments, incident response reports, and a whole lot more. PlexTrack clients say, quote, up to a 60% reduction in time spent reporting See, and man, that just feels good. 60%, 30% increase in efficiency, and for the boss, a 5x ROI in year one. PlexTrack provides a single source of truth for all stakeholders, transforming the cybersecurity management lifecycle. Book a demo today to see how much time PlexTrack can save your team. Try PlexTrack free for a month. See how it can improve the effectiveness and efficiency of your security team. Just go to PlexTrack.com slash twit and claim your free month. P-L-E-X-T-R-A-C. PlexTrack, no K. PlexTrack.com slash T-W-I-T. You know you want this thing. Get it. PlexTrack. And your team wants it too. PlexTrack.com slash twit. We thank you so much, PlexTrack, for supporting Security Now. And you, Security Now listeners, you support us when you use that address. So please do PlexTrack.com slash twit. And now the continuing LastPass uh, saga. And, I, you know, we still use LastPass for our, our enterprise. Um, I do. Access and identity management. Uh, so... Let me know if we should stop. We, so, I mean, I use Bitwarden like, at home, but but Twit uses LastPass. 
like many other LastPass users, last week I received another note from LastPass. Uh, the note is short, uh, so I'll read it into the record. Uh, we got a note from uh, Team LastPass, is how it was signed. Dear valued customer, in keeping with our commitment to transparency, we wanted to inform you of a security incident that our team is currently investigating. We recently detected unusual activity within a third-party cloud storage service, service, which is currently shared by both LastPass and its affiliate, GoTo. We immediately launched an investigation, engaged Mandiant, a leading security firm, and alerted law enforcement. We've determined that an unauthorized party using information obtained in the August 2022 incident was able to gain access to certain elements of our customers' information. Our customers' passwords remain safely encrypted due to LastPass's zero-knowledge architecture. We're working to diligently understand the scope of the incident and identify what specific information has been accessed. As part of our efforts, we continue to deploy enhanced security measures and monitoring capabilities across our infrastructure to help detect and prevent further threat actor activity. In the meantime, we can confirm that LastPass products and services remain fully functional. As always, we recommend that you follow our best practices around the setup and configuration of LastPass, which can be found here. And then they provided a link, as is our practice. We will continue to provide updates as we learn more. Please visit the LastPass blog for the latest information related to the incident. We thank you for your patience while we work through our investigation. Okay, so there's no follow-up yet. Last time, we waited precisely three weeks for the first announcement. Uh, The first release occurred... uh, I mean, we, 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 sorry, we were, we waited exactly three weeks from the first announcement. The, the first announcement came on August 25th, and three weeks later, we got the update on September 15th. For me, the two most relevant pieces of information in this first of presumably two disclosures are where he, where the person, the team <laughs> wrote, We've determined that an unauthorized party using information obtained in the August 2022 incident was able to gain access to certain elements of our customers' information, so that, and our customers' passwords remain safely encrypted due to LastPass's zero-knowledge architecture. Okay, so as usual, from, you know, all such partial disclosures, we're left wanting more. Of course, you know, we don't know at the moment which, quote, certain elements, unquote, of their customer information was inadvertently made available. But they apparently know. They're not saying yet. Um, We know from the follow-up note from the first intrusion that the bad guys were rummaging around in some developer network that was not connected to their production systems. But now it appears that those who were doing the rummaging managed to get sufficient information. They found something. (laughs) Right. They found some keys in there. Right. Whether in the form of source code that they, you know, that that disclosed or perhaps like some other way to get into something else, or maybe in the form of credentials that were bound into the whatever it was they got, which were used to to perpetrate this latest breach and information exfiltration. Um, 
if LastPass lost control of their customers' billing data, you know, names, credit cards, street addresses, and so on, that would not be good. But, you know, at this point, we're just speculating. Presumably, in another two weeks or three, whenever, we'll be told more. We let, you know, let's hope. Um, last week, after this happened, I popped on for the first 50 minutes of Tech News Weekly with Jason and Micah uh, to talk about this latest breach. Uh, I made the same point that I always make, which is that none of the passwords and other secret data that's being stored by any of the many competing password managers, you know, LastPass and all of them, should ever be vulnerable to any breach of the data that's being stored on our behalf in the cloud. You know, that's thanks to what we once called, we, we, we coined the abbreviation or an acronym, PI, which stood for pre-internet encryption, you know, which the industry now calls end-to-end encryption, though that term is becoming less useful as non-end-to-end systems uh, abuse it. I mean, you know, even Apple says that iMessage is end-to-end encrypted, except that, well, it's not in the not in the cloud because they have the keys to that. So, again, the, unfortunately, the definition of end-to-end is being abused. But, you know, that's going to happen when any, you know, popular phrase gets into the marketing department. Um, the, but the point is, if it's done correctly, we're really just using a password manager's cloud service to keep our various devices synchronized. It's it's simply a synchronization mechanism. And in fact, my my annoyance with the passkeys system, which is becoming hopefully will become popular, is that it isn't there isn't an all-in-one cloud sync for them. This is an opportunity for Microsoft to keep their devices separate from Apple, to keep their devices separate from Google, to keep their devices separate, unfortunately. But anyway, um, maybe that'll change when password managers start supporting pass keys. Maybe we'll get sync back. That's a possibility. Um, the threats we face to our stored secrets, and this is the point, are only on our end. Um, in order to do its work, at some point, any password manager must have at least the user's, you know, username and password decrypted for the site that they're visiting and want to fill in the form for. I don't know whether the password that whether the entire password archive is decrypted as a whole or whether sites can be decrypted individually, which would seem safer to me. But either way, at some moment in time, the data must exist in the clear in the user's browser. Way back at the start of this podcast, we noted the inherent impossibility of protecting encrypted DVD video content because the player itself needed to be able to decrypt the DVD in order to play it for its owner. And the DVD's publisher ultimately had no control over the DVD player and what it did. So all they could do is the best they could do. If the password manager's browser add-on were to be adulterated in some way to break its security design, or if something was able to somehow intercept its operation in the client, that would prove devastating. But it's difficult to see how any breach of 
LastPass or any other password manager's cloud syncing facility could ever endanger a user's always encrypted secrets. Now, of course, none of this prevents reputational harm to LastPass. you got to know they're not happy about this, but they're also like uh, the biggest target in town. So that's what comes with being a, the big target, like Chrome is the big browser target. And most users will have no idea what it means for all of their data to always be encrypted before it leaves their browser. They don't see anything leaving their web browser. They have no concept of the cloud or of client-side encryption or what any of that means. They just know that they're using this or that password manager and this or that password manager suffered a breach and that the press is now able to say that this is, in the case of LastPass, the second breach in a little over four months. If we assume that the decision to change password managers is unwarranted, and I'm not suggesting whether it is or it is not, it's, you know, a personal decision, then one huge advantage any password manager has is inertia. It's much easier to change search engines than it is to change password managers. You know, certainly it can be done, and the password managers have provided means to lower the bar to doing so, offering various importers of other password managers' content, uh, you know, and, and archives. But it seems most likely that until users learn that someone's passwords were actually stolen Inertia will reign. Um, you know, the statement, our customers' passwords remain safely encrypted, I think matters a lot, especially when changing password managers is a pain to do. Um, the listeners of this podcast, as knowledgeable and sophisticated as any, anywhere, uh, you know, they're able to make an informed decision. Uh, I don't know what it means for them. I'm continuing to, to remain with LastPass because I have no interest in punishing them for making a mistake. And there is no indication that the security I actually require from them has ever been endangered. You know, that said, I'll be interested in, you know, to learn more in the next couple of weeks when they're able to tell us more. I think, you know, their their fiduciary obligation is to immediately engage law enforcement and an outside firm and tell us that this has happened. It's, so it's reasonable for them to, for us to give them a few weeks, you know, for them to tell us more. And I'm, I'm sure we'll get something in a week or two. Good. Nothing, to, nothing to fear yet. Anyway. Um, yeah. I, and- I mean, I just, I do, I do think it, the fact that something that happened, some information that escaped from the first breach got, you know, yeah. used in some way is like, well, okay, that. You know, what it wasn't is a leak of uh, they don't know what your master password is. They can't unencrypt uh, your your vault. So there was nothing that could be leaked in that regard. Um, right. They, you know, the only thing maybe to worry about, and this was something that uh, Travis Ormond, Tavis Ormondy brought up, uh, is the, the way that that JavaScript uh, Chrome extension or Firefox extension works the code in there because at some point is, it does have to see it in the clear. Yes, that is the concern is what happens on the client side. Right. Not but but not on the cloud side. Right. 
Right. Yeah. And in fact, you know, what, one of my favorite expressions back when I was spending time doing squirrel stuff was that I used to say squirrel gives websites no secrets to keep. Yes. And that's the and key. That's the, that's the that's key. trust no one. Uh, exactly. It's, it's trust no one. Not right. even, you don't right. even have to trust your password manager. Right. Right. Um, and somebody's saying, well, didn't Steve review the code? Well, you reviewed the code, but like 10 years ago. I mean, I don't think well, any okay, of that so code what survives. I re- and it wasn't their code in their cloud. Uh, what what it was was it was the algorithm right. that Joe was using, which is this concept of client side right. blob encryption. Right. That's what it was. Right. And in fact, he even provided he provided me a web page where you could you you could go and like see a simplified JavaScript and understand it and see what it was doing. Yeah. My my guess is that any. All the major password uh, companies do basically the same thing. They'd be, they'd be insane not yeah, to. Yeah, E2E, that, encrypted you have to. Yeah. You have to do this. Yeah. The, the moment a password company actually compromises their their users' passwords, they might as well just declare Chapter 11. Right. It's over. Right. Roll up the carpet. Nobody right. will ever right. use them again. Right. The other good uh, side of this last pass uh, has been spun off LogMe, which uh, uh, it's a complicated, long corporate chain. Uh, but uh, the equity capital uh, company that bought LogMe is spinning LastPass off as a standalone company, which if it isn't already, it will be any day now. Uh, and in a way, that's good because, uh, of course, equity kept, capital... It helps them keep focus. Exactly. And equity capital is always looking to make their investment back. They're usually highly leveraged. So just getting that off in its own corner where nobody's yeah. going to tell them what to do means that... They, I mean, they're good people. They know what to do and they will keep doing the right thing um, as long as they're left to their own uh, devices. And I think that's well, probably and, the Well, and, you know, I mean, this hurt them. There's no doubt. This hurt them. No, you know, no one wants to say, "Whoops, we were breached." But you know, nothing to see. Uh, move along. Everyone, there, there's going to be a a bunch of people that go, "Okay, that's two in one year." Yeah. You know, I'm not waiting for three yeah. strikes. No, I'm going true. with two strikes. But but I, you know, but you've reassured us. I hope you know. I think everybody's listening. I, I, I'm not changing. Yeah. I'm I'm. And if you're in Australia, you know, just you know, don't you? <laughs> I don't know what Australia <laughs> would do. No, they had they did responsibly disclose it, didn't they? They they were uh, the letter of the law in Australia. Uh, and GDPR has a responsible disclosure clause. I don't know if we do in the U.S. Um, feels like we ought to, but since uh, you're um, there's uh, CISA is definitely certainly among government agencies. You know, thou shalt disclose. Yeah. Um, I, I think it was within was it 48 hours or 24 hours? I mean, it, it was there's short a short time. Yeah. You yeah. There's a short window yeah. at least, but I don't know. But they don't have the 50 the, million Australian dollar penalty to back it up. That's the problem. Oh boy, <laughs> that does that does get the job done. I must say. Yeah. I must say. Steve Gibson, you get the job done each and every Tuesday with Security Now. Thank you so much for episode 900. What a milestone, huh? Wow. We would never have thought way back in what was it, two thousand seven, two thousand six. We were still using cranks, cranks <laughs> to start our cars, Leo. It's a lifetime ago, uh, but we're we're doing it, and we're going to do it again next Tuesday, and we're going to keep doing it for yep. at least two more years. Uh, go yep. to uh, grc.com. That's Steve's website, the Gibson Research Corporation. A couple of things you can do there. Of course, first thing you should do is get Spinrite. The world's best mass storage, maintenance, and recovery utility. Looking better every day. You're getting 6.0, but 
we're we're minutes away from the release of 6.1 and anybody who buys now will get 6.1 for free uh, as an automatic upgrade you'll also get to participate in the development which is kind of a fun thing to do there's wonderful forums going on all the time steve's yes, got his don't own don't ask for group. any new features no no too no late it's locked please yeah. solid locked in uh, while you're there, you also should check out all the other freebies that Steve offers. Shields up his world-famous things to test your network, uh, router, and so forth. And you can get a copy of the show while you're there, too. Save yourself a step. Uh, he has 16 kilobit audio for the bandwidth impaired, 64 kilobit audio, that's the standard version, and transcripts written by Elaine Ferris. So they're very well done. So you can read along as you listen, or you can search to find a part of it. All that's at grc.com. Feedback forms are open at grc.com slash feedback. Uh, Steve's also on Twitter, although it sounds like it's a little busy now. Your DMs might be a little full. Uh, Don't DM him there, <laughs> yeah. but you can follow him. catching up to do. Yeah. At SGGRC. Uh, we have uh, copies of the show, too, at our website, uh, twit.tv slash SN. There's also a YouTube channel dedicated to security now, a good place to share clips if you want to share clips. All of the uh, big shows are on the YouTube. Uh, and, of course, you can subscribe. Best way to do this, to support RSS, you know, uh, podcasts, the, the original, the best, the, the you know, least privacy-invasive uh, form of podcasting uh, is, is getting it in a podcast client like, you know, Google's or uh, Android's podcast client or Pocket Casts, Overcast, something like that. Uh, and in fact, if you subscribe, then you don't even think about it. You'll just get it automatically. If you want to watch us do the show, we do it live Tuesdays, uh, roundabout, right after Mac Break Weekly. So that time will vary sometime between 1.30 and 2 p.m. Pacific time. That's uh, 4.30 to 5 p.m. Eastern time, 21.30 UTC. And the streams, audio and video are at live.twit.tv. Chat with us live during the show at irc.twit.tv. Of course, Club Twit members get their own private chat room in our discord discord is so great i just love it and one of the it's just one of the benefits of club twitch seven bucks a month one dollar less than a blue check on twitter steve i might point out if you could get one which apparently they still they still haven't done but for seven bucks a month you get ad free versions of every show you get shows we don't put out in public, like Hands on Macintosh with Micah Sargent, Hands on Windows with Paul Thorat, The Untitled Linux Show with Jonathan Bennett, Stacy's Book Club. We're doing Project Hail Mary next month. Uh, we're doing, uh, actually, this, I think it's this week. Let me look real quickly. We're going to do an interview with Glenn Fleischman. I'm going to ask me anything with Glenn Fleischman. That's our next event, and that date is December 15th. January 12th is the book club. Lisa and I, January 19th, are going to do an inside twit for club members. And Wintu Dow, our Android developer from All About Android, is doing a fireside chat in February. That's just some of the special events we plan for club twit members. Uh, plus, you also get the Twit Plus feed with stuff that happens before and after shows. Join the party, as Alia G says. Join the party. Go to twit.tv slash club twit. Uh, sign up for a day, a monthly subscription. You can also get a yearly subscription. That'd be a great gift for the geek in your life. There's corporate subscriptions too. And I got to say, it really uh, is important to us because I don't know if you've heard, times are tough in the you know RSS-based podcast world. Everybody's going to iHeart and Spotify and Amazon. We want to continue to do what we're doing. So uh, please, if you if you like what we do and you want to keep it going, help us out. Twit.tv slash Club Twit. There's my plug. 
I just put that in there. Steve, have a wonderful week. I am gone to book two of The Expanse. I'm finally getting around oh, to reading nice. The Expanse. You know, nice. I like the show okay, but I love the novels. I think they're very yeah. surprisingly good. I didn't expect yeah. quite so uh, well written. Yeah. So I just finished really Leviathan good. Wakes. Who is that a strong ending? <laughs> that gets you started, man. That's so exciting. <laughs> I, you know, yeah, forget the TV show. I'm reading the books. Thank you, Steve. Yeah. Have a great week. Okay, buddy. Bye. If you are looking for a midweek update on the week's tech news, I got to tell you, you got to check out Tech News Weekly. See, it's all kind of built in there with the title. You get to learn about the news in tech that matters. Every Thursday, Jason Howell and I talk to the people making and breaking the tech news, get their insights and their interesting stories. It's a great show to check out. Twit.tv slash TNW. Security.